seated. Would you pray with me and for me as we look to God's word this morning? Lord, help us to love you, to lay our lives down for you as a living sacrifice. Father, help us to live for your glory and not ourself and our self-glory. For it is infinitely incomparable. Lord, I just pray for us as a church that we would be free from sin. Help us to be holy as you are holy, as you've called us to be. But help us to not try to aim for that holiness in our flesh, which simply serves the self, but in yourself, Christ's self, which is given to us by grace through faith in the precious blood of Christ. Help us now as we look to this text on how to be a good neighbor, how to love our neighbors as you've called us to and modeled to us as well. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, a neighborly day for beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Would you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? Flashbacks, huh? Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood debuted in the U.S. on August 31st, 1968 and aired 31 seasons on PBS until it went off air finally in 2001. And the show was simply about the neighborly life of a man named Mr. Rogers. He was the best neighbor a guy could ever ask for. He was a super neighbor, you might say. In fact, it was said that on Halloween that Mr. Rogers, he wouldn't just give out fun-sized candy bars, but full-sized candy bars. Sounds like the house you want to hit up as a kid. And for the record, the fun-sized ones are false advertising. They're not quite so fun compared to the full-sized ones. Once when Mr. Rogers was about to take a fancy trip to meet a PBS executive at his house, The limo driver came to pick him up, and Mr. Rogers heard that the limo driver was going to have to wait outside for over two hours. So he insisted that the limo driver was allowed to come in and join them, which he did. And then on the way back, Mr. Rogers, he didn't sit in the back, he sat up in the front next to the man, and they chatted the whole way back. In fact, on the way back, when they were passing the driver's house, Mr. Rogers found out when he pointed out, oh, that's where I live, he said, oh, well, let's stop, I need to meet your family. And so... He said, sure. And he went on in. And Mr. Rogers ended up spending the evening with the family where they had a great time where he played jazz piano and he bantered with them late into the night. 
In fact, later on, the driver recounted the event and said it was one of the best days of his entire life. Every morning, Mr. Rogers woke up at the horrific time of 5 a.m. and responded to every single piece of fan mail that he received, which he's only probably second to Santa Claus on that. Mr. Rogers never swore, smoked, or drank, and his sweaters were knit by his mother. He's a good guy. He was also known for being the same good neighbor off the camera that he was on it, which often, as we know, isn't the case with these actors who portray nice guys on TV. They're often jerks in real life, but he was not. And for the record, no, he was not an ex-Navy SEAL sniper who hid his kill count tattoos on his sweater. That's fake news. Don't say it anymore. He was, in general, a nice guy and a really all-around great neighbor. You know, the Bible talks a lot about being a good neighbor. A whole lot, actually. In fact, Jesus said that loving your neighbor, you know where it ranked in terms of the most important commandments? Number two, only second to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, second, you were supposed to love your neighbor. Which is why in Matthew 22, it says to love your neighbor just as Mr. Rogers loved his neighbors. It doesn't say that, does it? It says to love your neighbor as your what? Yourself. See, none of us struggle to love ourselves. We naturally wake up in the morning, and one of the first things we do is look in the mirror to see the damage, and then we try to fix things. We're constantly trying to take care of ourselves. We feed ourselves. We make sure we get sleep when we need it. We clothe ourselves. We give, each, we give ourselves the things that we want when we can. All right? And so none of us struggle to love ourselves. What we struggle with is not, just be, is not being a good neighbor to ourselves, but to each other. That's where we fall hopelessly short. And so Jesus says, the same way you love yourself is how you're supposed to love your neighbor. That's pretty radical, right? None of us get even close to that, do we? And at this point, our natural response is, that's really hard. And if that's the case, Jesus, you better tell me who my neighbor is, because depending on who that is, that's going to be even harder, right? We have some pretty non-Mr. Roger neighbors, right? People who don't even come close, who are kind of the opposite of that. And then what is Jesus' answer about that question? Well, who is my neighbor, as he was directly asked in Scripture? Well, he goes on then to tell the story of the Good Samaritan in answering who our neighbor is. It's not just our friends. It's not our family. It's not those who are nice to us. It includes our enemies, those who persecute us, who would do us harm. Those people are who we are called to be good neighbors to. And this leads us to our passage this morning. In our passage this morning, we are going to see three things that we must understand as kingdom citizens in order to be a good neighbor. And here they are. Oh, we missed the slides there. That's my bad. Here they are. To be a good neighbor in Christ's kingdom, we must understand who we love, why we love, and how we love. Let's look at that first point. Who we love. As you are well aware of, in Matthew 5, Jesus, what is he doing? He keeps correcting the religious leaders and how they took God's law and they twisted it and they perverted it into this thing it was never meant to be. It's been happening over and over and over. And Jesus, as we've seen so far in the book of Matthew, he keeps dealing with them. Murder, he deals with hatred, right? Thou shalt not kill. He deals with adultery. He deals with 
divorce. He deals with all these issues where they were twisting God's commandments into something that they could easily follow, all right? Something that God never intended them to be. And so what they did here was instead of including all of humanity as was meant with the law to love your neighbor, as the Bible repeatedly says, especially in Leviticus, they changed it to mean what? To only love a fellow Jew. Only love the people in your tribe, in your family, those who are like you. That's what they turned it into. And how hard of a standard is that? Not very hard. Sometimes it's a little bit challenging, but it's not like naturally repulsive to us. We get that. We get that we should do that. In fact, they went further on to say that everyone outside of their circle was their enemy who they were right to hate. It was righteous for them to hate them. Now, why would they have come to this conclusion? How did they do this? How did they redefine a neighbor into their enemy? Well, first off, I'll tell you why they did it. They did it so they could easily hit the mark, but secondly, they did it because they wanted to feel right with God. They didn't want to just achieve the standard. They wanted to do so in a way that give them a leg up before God. That's why they lowered God's law to this easier level to deal with. Now, here's how they came to this wrong conclusion. Think back to 1 Samuel 15 a few weeks ago where we looked at what God commanded King Saul to do. What did he command King Saul to do? To wipe out the Amalekites. That was a hard text. But these texts are God's word. It's God's commands to the Israelites. See, when the Israelites entered the promised land of Canaan, he commanded them to exterminate the Canaanites, to wipe them all out, which doesn't really sound like a very Mr. Rogers sort of thing to do, does it? Not even a little bit. But the truth is, and this is hard for us, the truth is this was the perfectly just and right thing to do because a perfectly just and righteous God commanded it. Which means that these people were getting exactly what they had coming. See, God is the judge of all the earth. The judge of all the earth. All right, And this truth goes back to the garden when God, the judge, judged Adam and Eve for their sin and kicked them out of the garden. Right, And then he followed through with Cain and Abel. After Cain killed Abel, he punished, Cable, punished Cain for killing Abel. It was sin. And then what do we find a little while after that? We find God punishing the entire world in a global, worldwide flood. Why? Because of their sin. God takes sin very seriously. And even though he's slow sometimes to carry out the justice upon sin doesn't mean he's not going to act on it. He will. All sin will be judged one day. Now, thankfully, though, because of Jesus, we've left all that judgment thing behind. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's no part of the equation anymore. Because with Jesus, there's no more judgment for anybody because basically Jesus is a, just a gigantic cosmic Mr. Rogers. That's what people will tell you, right? Is that true? No, says the church. That's not true at all. Not even a little bit. And if you think that way, which is very common and popular in our culture to do so, you better be careful what you read in the Bible because you're not going to like it. It's not going to fit with your cosmic Mr. Rogers version of Jesus. It's not going to work for you, all right? Because Jesus, do you know this? He talked more about hell than he did about heaven. That doesn't seem very Mr. Rogers-y. And be especially careful, though, if you are going to read the Bible, not to read Revelation 19, which talks about how one day Jesus is going to show up, not on a donkey like he did 2,000 years ago, but on a white horse with the 
host of heaven's armies behind him, with his eyes like a flame of fire, wearing many crowns and a robe dipped in blood, who then speaks, which will kill all the enemies with his wrath. And then after you read that, don't turn over another chapter to Revelation chapter 20, which talks about the great white throne judgment where this Jesus casts his enemies forever into the lake of fire. Church, if you think Jesus is a totally different God than the God of the Old Testament, you need to stop getting your theology from Christian coffee mugs, right? And get it from the Bible. Look at what the Bible actually says. The day of the Lord is near. This is Joel 1.15. The day when destruction comes from the Almighty. How terrible that day will be. It's weird. I've never actually seen that on a coffee cup. I had to go at it myself. And why is that? Well, the truth is because we Westerners, we don't like that stuff. We don't, it doesn't make us feel good about ourselves. We want verses that talk about how great we are and how much God loves us and how he needs us and how he couldn't handle heaven without us, so he sent his son down. So we write songs like that that are abysmally bad theology. But we don't like the idea of a God of wrath, so we invented a God in the image of Mr. Rogers. That's what we've done as a culture. We can't handle the God of the Bible. He offends our sensibilities. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they took these smite-them-all passages that are true and reveal a real living God who is both a God of love and wrath. They took these smite-them-all passages and they concluded it was right to do a little proverbial smiting of their own against their enemies in their actions and especially in their hearts. They hated their enemies. And what did Jesus say previously about murder? If you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. For murder is the seed that blossoms into, hatred is the seed that blossoms into murder. Right? It's the acorn which turns into the oak tree. And all of that, make no mistake, it's in our hearts. It's there, lying dormant, waiting for the perfect conditions to sprout forth the murder. Another way that they justified their hatred towards other was is what we call the imprecatory psalms. All right? That's a fancy word for basically, well, I'm just going to read a couple of psalms here for us. You can see what they are. These are the imprecatory psalms. Psalm 510 says, Declare them guilty, O God. And this is King David. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. And then Psalm 79, 6-7. Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and devastated his homeland. Here's a really hard one that will definitely not fit on the coffee cup. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. How are we supposed to deal with this as a church? Can we just say, oh, that's Old Testament, that's not inspired, they didn't, that's not actually a reflection of God's character? Come on, that's, that's clearly barbaric caveman type stuff. We don't, that's not new, even New Testament, that doesn't fit. Well, it does. So the question is then, how do we fit what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 39, where he says not to resist an evil person, with what David says here? Who's right, David or Jesus? And the answer is, of course, yes. Both are right. Both are reflections of God's character. For we serve a God of both 
wrath and judgment and love and mercy. See, in the imprecatory Psalms, what is David doing? Is he calling down judgment upon his enemies because he's, he's upset with them and he's, he's upset that they slapped him around and did him harm? Is David offended because they diminished David's glory? No. Who is David's zeal for? It's for God's. It's not for David's. See, that's what we naturally do. I want justice and vengeance because my self-image was attacked when you offended me. It's not that I am jealous and zealous for the glory of God and my zeal is for him. No, it's for myself. But David here is rightly concerned not with his honor, but with God Almighty's. He's not writing these verses out of vindictiveness or a need for personal vengeance. No. David's zeal was for the Lord, which is why he writes in Psalm 69, 9, for zeal in your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Zeal for God and his glory is right, church. Zeal for self and personal glory is sin. And the bottom line is this. God is the judge of all the earth who will surely do what is right. For as Revelation 19.2 says, for his judgments are true. They're always right. And so any hatred that I might have for the sin that offends his holy name is right hatred. All right? Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. That's not talking about get things right with the missus before bed. That's saying stay angry at your sin. Don't let the anger against your sin subside. Keep it burning hot. Keep it, keep it going, all right? Because hatred towards sin is a godly affection. And it has to be out of the right motive. Not because we hate how it affects us and ourselves primarily, but how it offends a holy God. And so, any hatred that we might have for sin that offends him is right. And so then we also, out of that, leave all vengeance to this God who will repay rightly at the right and proper time. Romans twelve nineteen says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. The religious leaders lowered God's standard to something that they could easily reach. And the way they did this was by going beyond what the scriptures actually said. All right? We're not going to go into all the logical terms. I went back and forth, but I was like, no, don't do it. The point here, though, is, yes, we apply a logic to scriptures, but we don't go beyond what scripture says and use human rationality to draw conclusions that the scripture doesn't draw for us. We can't do that. See, what they did was they took the command to love your neighbor, and then they coupled it with David's hatred of sin and love for God's glory, and they wrongly concluded that it was right to both hate the sin and the sinner. But we know better, don't we? We hate the sin, and what to the sinner? Love them. We love the sinner, but hate the sin. They also missed the fact that David's hatred was perfect hatred. For in that moment, through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwelt him as, these, as he spoke and wrote these words, he perfectly aligned with the character of God in his expressions. It was right for him to say what he said, which is why David later writes, Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. And why? Because they're God's enemies. 
He's hating the sin that offends his God, right? And so what a lesson this is for us today, is it not? Think about it. How many of the divides do we have as Christians which are simply due to going beyond what scriptures have stated? Going beyond what the Bible says into speculation? Have you ever seen Christians do this when it comes to the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? How about all the time? All the time. Is God, let me ask you a question, is God the complete and total sovereign author of all of human history? Is he? Yes? <laughs> let me ask you another question. Is humanity 100% responsible for their choices and their sin? And are they 100% responsible to call and repent and believe on the name of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? A lot more people said yes on the second one than the first. I noticed that. They're like, Heather, is this a trick question? No, both of those are absolutely true. Absolutely true. God is the complete and total sovereign of human history, and humans, us, we are 100% responsible for our choices. We are. This is what the Bible clearly teaches. But you know what? I can't make sense of that, can you? And if you think you can, you're wrong. You can't make sense of it. But we try to make sense of it. And here's how this works. We either pick the sovereignty cart of Romans 9, or we hyper-focus on the human responsibility cart that we find in Romans 10. And then we put all of our apples into that cart at the expense of the other. And then we get all surprised when that cart breaks down a mile down the road, down the exegetical road, because it cannot bear that full weight. We have to let Scripture speak. We cannot go beyond what Scripture says. Why? Because it'll get us into trouble. Church, there is a simple exegetical truth the Pharisees forgot that we must not, and that truth is this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. To avoid going beyond what Scripture says, we must remember Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, which says, do not go beyond what is written in God's word. Verbatim, that's what he literally says. Don't go beyond it. And there's other texts that tell us that. And this is a truth the religious leaders of Jesus' time failed to learn big time. Let me ask you, is today any different? Do we ever see prominent, highly respected evangelical leaders going beyond what scriptures have said? How about all the time? It's like a regular thing now. It seems that's all we ever hear about. As Christians continue to merge the beliefs of the culture with what Scripture says, which actually turns biblical truths into satanic ones. Syncretism, the merging of Christianity and secularism, does not work. It turns Christianity into Satanism, really. It's always that way. That's how Satan works. Truth with lie. That's the recipe. And we fall for it every time. And so we must remain faithful and hold to the truths of God's word, even when our three-pound, sin-fallen human brain can't understand how or why God would do the things he does or why he would be the way he is. God, why are you this way? Why the imprecatory psalms? How is this just? How is this right? In which the response is, I trust you. I don't see how. 
as your pastor, I, don't, I can't comprehend these things. I can't fit them together in my Western mind. But I trust that God is good, that he is just, and that he is perfectly righteous. Even when I can't fully see that, do you? You ought to. We are called to. The religious leaders miss this. And because they found themselves missing it, they easily justified the murderous hatred that was within their hearts. However, for kingdom citizens, we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Why? Because that's the kind of love our Heavenly Father gives. It's the kind of love He shows, which leads us to our second point. To be a good neighbor in Christ's kingdom, we must understand who we love, but secondly, why we love. Verse 44, if you have your Bibles. Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. You know, when a couple has a baby, what are the usual comments that you hear? Besides, oh, it's so cute, adorable, perfect, love. You know, well... Oh, she's got her mother's eyes. Oh, look, she looks just like her data, smirk and all. <laughs> we notice the traits of the parents in the child right away, right? We do, which is precisely the point that Jesus is making here in this text. Jesus is saying that when people look at you, they should say, oh, she's got her heavenly father's love, mercy, and grace. Can you see it? Oh, look at how he treats his enemies. It's just like his heavenly Father does. And how does our heavenly Father treat his enemies? Does the rain come down only on the just or the unjust as well? When you're at the beach, are there little dark spots that follow around unbelievers that prevent the sun from shining on them and it only shines on everything else? No. It shines everywhere. For as James 1.16 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Church, our God is more merciful than we can possibly fathom. Our God is more patient than we can comprehend. Our God is more kind and generous to us and gracious to us than we can even imagine. And to who? To his friends, to his brothers and sisters, those, his family? No, to his enemies, to even those who hate him. And so if we are God's sons and daughters, we will and must have these character traits. For to not carry the character traits of the parent reveals that we are illegitimate children. 1 John 4, 7 tells us just this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's not saying, church, you want, you want to make God your father? You better go be a loving person. No, it's the opposite. It's saying if God is your father, you will have his traits, which is love. We all love, we are to love enemy or friend, and we are to do so because it is the kind of love that our Heavenly Father gives. 
1 Timothy 2.4 tells us that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And in verse 48, we find another description of what our love must look like. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about the same thing that he mentioned a few verses earlier when he said, if you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must have a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Your righteousness must exceed even the most righteous among you, or you will still fall short. What Jesus is saying is your love towards your neighbor must be infinitely, massively greater than even the love of Mr. Rogers that he had towards his neighbors. Mr. Rogers didn't even come close. He didn't even get in the ballpark, all right? So let me ask you, do you love those who love you? Big deal, Jesus says. For even wicked tax collectors can do that. That's not very impressive. Do you greet only your brothers? That's not very impressive. Even the godless Gentiles can do that. But Jesus says to do what? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Does this seem like a tall order? Yes. Yes, it does. And if you think it's easy, I can assure you, you've never tried to love your enemies or pray for those who persecute you. For if you did, you'd know just how tall of an order this is. You would know how impossible, in fact, this is to pray for someone who's harmed you, to pray for someone who's humiliated you. For in those moments, what does our hearts naturally scream for? Vengeance. Retaliation. To slap back twice is hard. If you've ever tried to do this, you know how hard this is. In fact, you know that in your own power, unless you're deluded and just don't realize it, in your own power, it's impossible. You cannot do it. It is an impossible task to follow, which leads us to our last point. To be a good neighbor in Christ's kingdom, we must understand who we love, why we love, and how we love. Verse 48, I'll read it again. You therefore must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. When Jesus says we must be perfect, why is he telling us this? Because we're not, right? You don't command people to do something if they're already doing it, right? We're not perfect, so he commands us to be perfect. And why are we not perfect? Well, think last week, all right? We are obsessed with ourself, and when anyone threatens ourself, we go ballistic. Because the true God of our life is the self. We're all born that way. We are all naturally worshiping the self. We are obsessed with the self, which is precisely why we need to kill the sinful self. We must, as John Owen says, mortify our flesh. And how do we kill the flesh? How do we mortify the sinful self so that we can love perfectly as we ought? This is an important question. Well, for starters, to answer it, we must recognize love is a verb. It's an action. Does Jesus say in this text, I tell you this, you must feel loving emotions towards your enemies. You just got to feel the warm fuzzies for them. Go. Is that what he's saying? No, said the church. That's not what he's saying. He says to love them, not to feel feelings 
positive feelings and affections towards them. He's saying love them because love is an action, not an emotion. You don't have to feel like loving somebody to love them. Not even a little bit. Think Jesus felt like dying on a cross? No. But he did so out of his love for us, because love is an action. Which means for us practically, when someone sends us bitter words, even though I want to slap them, I don't, and I send them kind words. When someone uses harsh words against us, and my flesh wants to one-up them with a big good zinger to put them in their place, I don't. I respond with gentle, gracious words, merciful words. When someone double-crosses us and is cruel to us, we respond not with vengeance, but with loving grace and kindness. But preacher, how am I supposed to act this way towards someone I don't even like? Who said anything about liking them? You don't have to like them to love them. That's getting into the feelings category, and we just talked about this. Look, I love my kids, and most of the time I usually like them too. But sometimes I don't, right? Not, as, not so much. Sometimes they get irritating. I'm like, is it bedtime yet? Like, come on. But the, even in those moments, I still give them dinner. I still tuck them in. I still help them brush their teeth. Old Becky and I together. I'm not taking all the credit here. Uh, but you know what the remarkable thing is? These loving acts serve then to often bolster my feelings, to bolster my liking of them. C.S. Lewis talked about this, and I'm going to give you a Lewis quote because it's a good one. He says, do not waste time bothering about whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Through the grace of God only is that true. Very true. Do then, I ask, do you pray for your enemies? Do you pray for those who have persecuted you and harmed you? Do you ask God to have mercy upon their souls and to spare them from the punishment for the sin they sinned against you that they rightly deserve? Don't answer that too quickly. That's hard. I struggle with that, right? My flesh hates that. Do you do these things? Or do they seem impossible to you? If so, do you know why that is? I'll tell you why. Because you have not yet come to understand what saving grace is and what it's all about. For if you did, yes, it'd be a struggle, but you would do it because you see that person before you as someone who is no different than you. And what are we? But sinners saved by grace. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And why do we do this? Well, one, God commands it, but two, God lived it. Romans 5, 8. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only did Jesus teach us the right thing to do, but the Lord taught us it and modeled this to us by his example. For upon the cross, we see Christ dying, not for his family, not for his friends, but for his enemies. 
the very men who condemned him. Though they hated him, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus do? He prayed in anguish with sweat drops of blood. Though they reviled him, he did not revile back. Though they cursed him, beat him, whipped him, and smashed a crown of thorns upon his head and drove the nails into his hands, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he did that for me. He did that for you. To save us. To make us God's children so that we could go forth and model that same love towards others and point them to the Savior. I don't care if you're Mr. Rogers yourself. On your own, you cannot do this. Don't fool yourself. Make no mistakes. You cannot do what Jesus is calling you to do here. In your own strength, you can't love anyone but yourself. This is a supernatural feat that we are talking about. On our own, yeah, we can be passive. We can turn the other cheek sometimes and not strike back physically and outwardly. We can bite our tongues. However, apart from the grace of God, not a single one of us can truly love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We simply can't. At least until we have come to see the wonderful nature of God's saving grace who saved a sinner yet like me. And when we finally see our perfect loving Savior upon the tree, our hearts cry out, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? Please won't you be my neighbor, Mr. Rogers sang. Is that the cry of your heart? Not just to your friends, but to your enemies? Has the radical grace of God supernaturally changed your heart? Has it changed the longing of your heart to see your fellow sinners receive the same saving grace that you have? And is that evident in your life by the love and prayers you are regularly offering to those who hate you and persecute you? I trust by the power of his wonderful grace that it is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for hard texts like this, which show us how our self may still be in control, how we have not mortified the flesh. And so, Father, I ask that by your grace that we might be able to do these things, to be perfect as you are perfect. Father, help us to be reflective here now. To not just hear this truth today as nice sentimentality or nice thoughts, but as action steps to take in our life. Help us to think about those around us who have harmed us. Maybe there's unresolved relationships, bitterness, anger, disagreements, maybe even with God's fellow people, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I ask that we would be peacemakers not peacekeepers, but that we would show grace and mercy and kindness through our loving actions. For love is an action, not a sentimentality, not nice thoughts or feelings, but it is an action. And praise God that it is, for if love was not an action, we would be all hopelessly doomed on our way to an eternal hell separated from your love. 
But we praise you that your love is an action. And that Christ, though he did not feel like loving us, he chose to love us. And so we praise you for that. Help us to live a life that is affected by your grace in all areas. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to pray for those who persecute us. We will give you all the praise, all the honor, and all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song, Amazing Grace?